For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. The wall around Jerusalem has been completed, but Nehemiah's work is far from over. The new residents who will repopulate the city will have to live cautiously if the new wall is going to be effective. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, Vigilance. Alrighty, good evening everybody, good evening. We are going to pick up now after a long break with Christmas and New Year's and all of that. Uh, back to where we were before those weeks occurred. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah chapter 7, you put your finger there. Well, that's where we're headed. Now, Father God, we do pray and just pause for a moment. Your Holy Spirit would focus us and help us to be in a good posture to receive your word tonight. Uh, Father, that the distractions would be cleared and that we would be soft-hearted and open to hear the word of the Lord and to hear it, understand it, and put it into practice. We need your help to do that. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you may have recalled um, the dramatic prison break uh, last June, uh, upstate New York, two notorious uh, convicted murderers managed to saw holes into the back of their cells uh, and provided uh, an escape route for them uh, under the tunnels uh, there underneath the prison, uh, which launched a nationwide uh, manhunt there, which ended after 21 days or so in the Adirondack Mountains. Uh, One of the felons was fatally shot. Uh, The other one was also shot but apprehended, and he's back in prison in solitary uh, confinement. Now, how do two bad guys, uh, convicted murderers, escape from a maximum security prison? And that's the kind it was. How, does, how do they make the walls insignificant? I mean, uh, check out the walls. I've got a picture of it. Those walls are tall, <laughs> and there are armed guards everywhere. They're watchmen, and, and they, they didn't stop with just prison walls. They have barbed wire and all kinds of things and modern technology, but somehow two guys managed to saw their way through and escape, and they made it 21 days. They almost made it to the Canadian uh, border. How did that happen? Well, I read an interesting article the way it happened was that the prison guards fell asleep. And they, were, uh, they would always fall asleep during certain hours, which allowed them time to saw in the back. So you're sawing uh, in the back of your cell, and they're sawing logs, uh, snoring away. And so that enabled them uh, to escape. Now, several guards no longer work in that industry anymore. And uh, yeah, so with, thank you for that picture, it just gives you uh, the idea of what went on there. Um, you know, 
it doesn't matter how high the wall is or how thick it is or the barbed wire or uh, uh, the effectiveness of that kind of security depends on the human component, right? I mean, the vigilance of the, the human beings who are entrusted uh, to guard, to stand guard. The height of the wall doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about the security of the gate. Uh, if the person supposed to be on guard is asleep, Right, And so that's exactly the point of chapter 7 uh, tonight here in Nehemiah. Now you'll recall, it's been a while, so uh, for a hundred years, Jerusalem uh, was kind of a ghost town, kind of a pile of uh, rubble. The glorious temple, Solomon's temple, had been uh, destroyed. The high wall there of security uh, was leveled to the ground, and the people, the Jews, who God brought into the promised land were shipped off into all points in the Middle East, mostly Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and uh, Iran. And so God kept his promises. He promised in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 4 that if they um, kind of would bite the hand that fed them, that they couldn't stay in the promised land, that God would remove them and chastise them. And he kept that promise, but he also kept the other promise that said if they turned in their hearts after that kind of punishment, that he would bring them back from the lands he had scattered them in. And those promises are in Jeremiah and also in Zephaniah. And so God's keeping his promise. He brought them all back, right? Well, he allowed 42,000 of them to come back. Only 2% really began, began to take advantage of the ability to come back to the promised land. So you'll recall that under Ezra's leadership, um, 40,000 came back and the exiles returned and they, they started to build, rebuild the temple. And then under Nehemiah, our book uh, that we're studying, uh, uh, thousands came with him as well, uh, and under his wise and courageous leadership, they started to rebuild that security wall. And so that's been the subject of our chapters one through six, uh, that miraculous undertaking uh, that we have studied. And so a nice summary that allows us a little jumping off point now uh, to pick up where we left off comes from last time, last chapter. Uh, and I'll quote from verse 15 of chapter 6. So the wall was finished, a total of 52 days. When all of our enemies heard of it, all the neighboring nations, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, when they all heard about this, they were frightened. Their, their high opinion of themselves received a serious setback, and they acknowledged that this work was from God. And so now we pick up in chapter 7, verse 1. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel. Citadel is just like a tower or um, a palace tower. Uh, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most men do, I said to them, the gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the doors and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some, point, some at their posts and some near their own houses. So we're gonna park right there and take a look at what we can uh, learn because you know that the Old Testament, the New Testament tells us 
that the Old Testament events and characters have been written down for us, and it says, upon whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. In other words, that God knit together the Old Testament characters and events and incidents to tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the church age, because a lot of what was going on in their hearts and lives doesn't even make sense without it being fulfilled in the church and in Jesus Christ. And so whenever you're reading the Old Testament, just know there's a lesson about Jesus Christ, the church, your life, and mine, because it's speaking of the fullness of Christianity. So what's the lesson that jumps out here already? There's a lesson for us uh, even tonight, uh, and that lesson is the, is the importance of vigilance to be aware, to be alert, to be on guard, because there are a lot of things that come against our Christian life. And so uh, that's kind of been the theme of the book of Nehemiah. So in this little paragraph, I see uh, vigilance in three areas, uh, right priorities, the right people in the right place, and right policies and procedures. And so let's just take a look at uh, your text here, the importance of vigilance. Now, so uh, right priorities, right away you see in the opening verses uh, that the Levites and the singers are right away, the wall goes up, what's the first priority? You get the gatekeepers, of course, you have to have people there. The, the Levites and the singers, you might as well be calling them the pastors and the worship team because that's who the Levites were. They were priests, or we would call them pastors, and they taught the word of God, and they ministered uh, to the people. And the singers, of course, were the worship leaders. And so the first priority, the wall goes up, and what's, what do they need? They need the life and the fellowship, the heartbeat of Christianity, life with God. What does it matter? You, you, you finished the task. You could have said, whew, I'm done with this. You know, I, I finished it. I accomplished it. Uh, but a wall without God's love and God's truth uh, is just a wall. What is even heaven without the Savior, the God who knit us together in our mother's womb? I mean, I'm going to be looking for Jesus, right? I don't think it's going to be hard to find him. Uh, but really, streets of gold without the one who created us and the love that saved us. I mean, this is what, what makes the wall and the temple and the holy land and the promised land anything significant is that within its walls, the word of God and the worship of God. That's what brings the place to life. It's never about uh, the walls of the church building. Oh, my word, go to Europe. What happened there? Those churches, their museums. And, but that, what a beautiful wall was accomplished. You, you see, the, the majesty of the artwork and the stained glass and the sculptures. And, I mean, it's breathtaking. I've been in some of them. And, uh, they really are astounding and magnificent, but they're empty. And, and there's no life in there because really what happened there, part of the cause of the demise of that, really was the concentration of the focus on the outward structure without the inward life, you see? And so there was this uh, formality and everything went outward instead of focusing 
inwardly. And so you don't see Nehemiah making that mistake. So what? We've got a glorious temple again. We've got the wall up. But we need the life of God within the midst uh, to, to mean anything at all. And so, you know, uh, sadly, just outward structures like that and traditions uh, really replace the teaching of the word of God. And you can tell that when you go over there. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, at first the people existed for the walls in that they had to rebuild them. And now the walls existed for the people. And so it was all about the word of God and the worship of God. Now, we also see that the right people were needed uh, in the right places in verse uh, 2. So uh, Nehemiah puts his brother Hanani uh, in charge, uh, not because it's it's his bro, you know, hey, man, you're my brother. I got a nice sweet spot for you to fill. But because this is the guy who's most qualified to be there. And he tells you why he and another guy are going to get administrative um, positions. You'll recall, Nehemiah chapter 1, that Hanani is the guy who started the whole thing. He came back from a, a visit, a tour to the Holy Land, to where they were living in Iran, near the Persian Gulf. And he came to his brother, you know, Nehemiah, and said, man, it's, it's disgraceful. It's been 150 years since Nebuchadnezzar came in and leveled, uh, leveled the place. And we got to do something about that. And Nehemiah got a, a God-breathed passion to, to call God's people together and to go and uh, have the, the Spirit of the Lord help them to bring back some respect and dignity to God's city there, Jerusalem. And so uh, what a beautiful description of this guy. So it's not nepotism that got him the job. It's that, listen, look at him. First of all, he's integrity. The word in the Hebrew there, it, it means um, reliability. Um, it means trustworthiness. It means faithfulness. And the English word integrity kind of catches all of that. Uh, but the English word, as I've mentioned before, integrity, comes from the Latin word, integer, which means whole. So the English understanding of the word integrity or faithfulness is is that you are completely and consistently one way, right? So to be a person of integrity means uh, you are the same at church as when you're in the car. You're You're the same in character when things are going well as when they're not. You're the same in the light as you are in the dark. And one writer said integrity is what you are when nobody's watching, you see, because you're whole. That's just who you are. No matter where you slice it, it comes up the same. Trustworthy, 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 trustworthy. And this was Hanani. Hanani was like that. And so he gets the job uh, that way. He, and and uh, Dr. Bob uh, Jones put it this way. Bob Jones University, the founder. Uh, The greatest ability is dependability. The greatest liability, then I would say, uh, is an untrustworthy person. And I like the Proverbs. I love them. I read them every day. Uh, Proverbs 26 says, like an archer who 
uh, wounds at random is one who hires a fool or any passer buyer. So when you entrust yourself or something important to somebody you haven't properly vetted, right? And they turn out to be unfaithful or uh, just foolish. A lot of harm happens to a lot of people. And that's why it's like uh, uh, a random shooter. Lots of people are going to get hurt. There's another uh, uh, proverb that along the same lines it says trusting a fool to deliver an important message for you is like drinking poison now I start stuck what, what does that mean it can do you a lot of harm to send something important you rely this is an important thing you give to somebody and they're a fool well what happens is you end up really in a world of hurt that's what and, and you're the one doing it you're drinking it because you didn't have the sense to say, what am I doing in trusting that person or giving this responsibility or dating this person? What am I doing with the, I, I mean, God, I'll show you character problem, character problem, character problem, and you still continue on. You know, talk about, you know, connecting to somebody who is untrustworthy uh, a lot of people will suffer because of that. But that's not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not going to ruin everything of six chapters of work, miraculous work of God, by putting some bozo in a place he shouldn't be. Amen? Yeah. Oh, no, you're going to get fired up sooner or later. <laughs> it might be later, but we'll <laughs> in your cars on the way home. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, come on. Nehemiah is just, he's smart. He's going to say, you take this job, brother. You know, second, well, what does it say? If he, they, he fears God more, more than most guys do. Oh, I want to, that to be said of me in any regard. You know, they, uh, he has a closer relationship with God than most or, or of anybody. Couldn't you, wouldn't you want to be described as somebody who loves their spouse better than most. They read their Bible, they know their Bible better than most. Oh, it's just a beautiful thing to say. Yeah, sure, I mean, anybody who knows the Lord has some semblance of re revering the Lord. And that's what, by the way, fearing God doesn't mean we're afraid of him. It means there's some kind of awesome respect for the living God who can speak and create the universe. And so uh, there's that respect and honor. And Hanani honored and respected God more than most guys do. That's just, just so beautiful. If you want to stand out in life, why not let it be about how much you love the Lord or something useful to the kingdom of God? Why do you want to be you know, all these young people's aspirations, can it include God at all? Why do you want to be known for, hey, I want to be the best, add for Christ, or so that, that by being the best whatever, that it gives you a platform for you to share the gospel or for people to look at you and say, hey, that, that person... Uh, reveres the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, so, so far so good. The, the right priorities is to give attention to the word of God and worship. And, and the right people, solid character, uh, dependable people in positions of trust, 
Uh, these are, are what make Christian life and Christian ministry effective and productive. And the last one is the right uh, protocols or right policies in place. And this one is always being watchful. Always being watchful because in this life, not in the life to come, but in this life, there are pitfalls everywhere. The world, the flesh, our sinful nature, and then the evil one. There's a lot set up to cause us to be able to stumble, and you are constantly called to be awake and alert, to standing guard, not to live in some sort of paranoid sense of fear and trembling, but to, to be wise as serpents and to be meek uh, as doves. And so anyway, we see that here in verse 3, uh, as, as he, he says, um, you know, uh, how to go about their daily affairs with an eye toward uh, being watchful and defense. So the gates are to remain locked and bolted until the sun is hot. What is he saying? He's, he's saying no dawn deliveries, okay? You know, in the early morning fog and the mist, when somebody can slip in, one of the bad guys, we are gonna wait until the sun is high in the sky and under the full bright strength of day, we shall do our business for our God. Oh, that just speaks to me about our individual lives, you know? Uh, where do you preface every disaster? Uh, you hear somebody say, I didn't see it coming. I just had no idea. You should have seen it coming. God put the Holy Spirit in you, and if you were paying attention to the New Testament, which calls you to constant vigilance, to be alert and to be uh, discerning your own life, your own thoughts, your own situation, other people around you. You're supposed to be uh, on guard instead of saying, I didn't see it coming. Well, you should have. And God would help us if we uh, would apply ourselves uh, that way. And so he's saying, you know, no going in and out at dusk. And no, no business under the murky shadows that help bad guys do their thing. That's when evil people do their things. They do it at night under the cloak of darkness. That's when you get robbed or mugged or, you know, that's when they operate. They're called children of darkness for a reason, you know. So First uh, John chapter 1 talks about walking in the light. Walk in the light, not on the edges, not in the corners, Walk in the light, the fullness of the light. Where do, how do you do that as a Christian? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. So if you're near Christ in your thoughts and your heart devotion, each and every day you're reading the word of God, which is a lamp unto our feet. So there's two avenues right there, the word of God and prayer and meditation on the Lord. You're walking and living in light. And, and you're not going to make as many mistakes when the lights are all on. It's when... There's something obscuring the light uh, that you fall into trouble. So the, the policy is great. The policy is we don't do anything when there's shadows. <laughs> Stay away from the shadows. Walk in the light. That's what he's saying there. And so I also see that the gates were to be shut and bolted uh, before the guards went off duty. In other words, the guards were always there. If the gates were open, guards are always there. You never have it any other way. And there were guards, the city walls, and there are guards near the homes. You just can't have too many guards. And, and here's, the, here's the reason why. 
just let this sink into you. This is the word of God. Be alert and self-controlled, sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And one of his best lies is that you're too insignificant for you to be prey for him to want to devour. Oh, no, no, no. It's not so much about you. It's about the potential damage because the Holy Spirit is in you. And one random word out of your mouth can change somebody's eternal destiny. Therefore, you are significant, not so much because of who you are, but because of who he is and that he dwells inside of you. And so we are all a target. And so we have to live that way. So it's an interesting uh, note here uh, that in the book of Revelation, check this out about the gates and the walls and all of that. I have the cross-reference for you. In the world to come, things are going to be different. There's going to be a wall around the city which we live. I didn't see a temple in that city because the Lord God Almighty and Jesus, the Lamb, he's called the Lamb because of his nature and also because he was the sacrifice. And the Lamb are its temple. You know, there's no need to go to church because church is there. The city does not need the sun nor the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And Christ is its light and lamp. So the nations will walk by its light. So we have nations there. And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut. So I just it's so striking the difference between this life and the life to come. No gates will need to be shut there for the where there's no night. And there's no bad guys who do bad stuff at night. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. Now, everyone in the room is in that category. We have all done that, but we've discontinued doing those things because we have a new nature. And when we slip and do a shameful thing because we're in Christ, the blood of Christ forgives us of those sins. And so, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So I just saw a nice little contrast there about, uh, you know, you can't open the gates during certain, because it's going to be nighttime. Well, there's no nighttime where we're headed. And the gates are always open. And the walls are high. And nobody who does anything impure, the bad guys, they're on the other side. And so we look forward to that. So until then, thank you for that cross-reference. Keep the word of God and the worship of Jesus in the center of your busy building, whatever it is you're building, or you're just going to have a building. Uh, Number two, uh, don't entrust yourself uh, or important matters to untrustworthy people. And thirdly, what we just saw, conduct your life in the full brightness of God's truth and the Lord's presence. Uh, Moving on, verses four and following. Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart 
to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. These are the people of the province who came up from captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with these guys. Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, a different Nehemiah, Azariah, Ramiah, Nahamani, Mordecai, our Mordecai. Yeah, he made a trip. He was a pretty powerful uh, man in Persia. Bilshan, Mispereth, Bigvi. <laughs> Watch out for him. <laughs> Nahum and Bahna. <laughs> uh, he's a shepherd. He deals with sheep. This is his Bahna. Oh, I know. I used that from last week. Uh, the list of the men of Israel, and then there's a big, long list. So let's pause there. Now, so we got the right priorities, the right people and policies in place. Time to bring the people in, all right? So everything's up and running. Everything's good to go. Uh, but it's a ghost town still. You see, Jerusalem had been emptied, and those uh, people have removed and taken to the Middle East, as uh, we all know. So time to register the residents. So Nehemiah has got some practical things here. You know, the walls are up, but um, it says it's a large and spacious land, but uh, it's pretty much deserted. It'd been like that for about 150 years. Um, So that bothered Nehemiah. He looks around, he's like, hey, again, he could say finished, done, let them populate Jerusalem. Zion, right? And he could go back to Persia, right? Uh Uh-uh. He feels bad. He wants to see God's people prosper. He wants to to see it done all the way. And so because, listen, because of his posture of caring about what God cares about, God's people, God put it in his heart. I love in Hebrew, it says, uh, I love it. It says, God gave it to my heart. God gave it to my heart, verse 5, meaning God inspired me. I want to be the kind of person where God could say, hey, I've got a concern about my people, some issue. And and he's looking for a person because he wants to minister to somebody, right, that he can talk to me or to you and, and, and give it to your heart to place something on your heart to do for him. Now, the only reason he was able to do that with Nehemiah was there's a room and space. There are some people, there's just no space. There's no way he can tell. He can give it to the heart because the heart's filled with uh, busy, 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 me, 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 this problem, this problem, this problem. There's no way and there's no prayer time. There's no reflecting time. And every time you're in the car, if there's something in your ears. You know, there's no way to get a hold of you to put something on your heart that would bless God's heart, you know? I want to be the kind of guy where God can put something on my heart and then I can express my love to God by fulfilling what's on his heart. He doesn't have hands right now. 
these are his hands. He doesn't have a mouth to say, you know, to, to audibly speak to somebody and say, hey, there's a cliff there. Watch out. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. But his heart is burdened for that person and he wants to do it. Well, can he lay that on your heart? Or are you just, just too, too stacked up and too filled up and you're just not that kind of person? Nehemiah was. I want to be like Nehemiah. So he's all, Nehemiah, can you help me with something? Take a look at that. Oh, look how empty it is. And all the people are there. What should we do? And he's like, oh, let's get the list of people, figure out how many people came back. And there, in this list, we'll go on. There are names that represent 42,000 people. 2% of the Jews decide King Cyrus says, hey, you can go back now. Only 2% said, okay, we will. It had been 100 years. They had new families. They had jobs. Things were going well for them. And they didn't want to go back to the promised land. 2% did. And those are the pioneers. And so he finds the list, which is Ezra chapter 2. Ezra chapter 2 is the same list of people. And now I'm not talking about these seven dudes or how many dudes there were. I'm talking about a long list. And if you have your Bible, you will see it. It's like 70 verses of names. No worries. I'm not reading them. <laughs> All right. I wouldn't want to rob you the joy of doing that at home. But there's a whole bunch of names. And so he, they bring out the records and say, okay, how many houses do we have? How much land do we have? How many people are, have come back? And they're doing the math so that the practical matter, they can get those Hebrews back into Jerusalem to populate the brand new city that's all walled in and got the temple going and everything. The only thing missing, the people. So uh, Nehemiah is going to go about doing that. So we skip all the names that show 42,000 people. You know what? It doesn't matter about counting the people, it's the lesson is that people count. How cool would it be to have your name in the Bible? Because you decided, hey, you know what? King Cyrus said, hey, we can all go back. And they left all their stuff. And they, in faith, stepped out and went back to the promised land. And guess what they got for it? They're in the eternal word of God. That's pretty awesome. By the way, don't be too sad, because if you're a believer, you're in the book of remembrances, for one thing, that when God wants to recall some kind of act of kindness or sacrifice that his people do, Malachi calls it a book of remembrance. Now, God doesn't need a book, because he's got perfect recall, right? But he, he speaks in ways for us to understand, and so he says that on, the, on that great day and in eternity, he has a book of remembrances, and he's going to say, hey, remember the time? And there's going to be reward connected to that. Not only that book, but the Lamb's Book of Life. You're in that book. If you're going to be in heaven, your name has been penned in that book. And just, I can't wait to see these things. And, you know, I can, I can imagine the book open and God said, come on over here. Check that name out. Look at that. You remember that day, that name covering in that book? That's pretty awesome. Pretty awesome thing. Uh, and so, uh, skipping down to verse 66. So, the whole list got 
put out there. Now the whole company uh, numbers 42,360. Besides, there's 7,337 men servants and maid servants, and they also had 245 men and women singers. There were 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 100 drachma, it's just a coin, so 1,000 coin, golden coins, 50 basins or bowls, and 530 garments, robes for the priests. Um, some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 drachma of gold and 2,200. Mina is a weight, so that's about 1,200 pounds of silver. Uh, the total given by the rest of the people were 20,000 coins, gold coins, and about 1,000 pounds of silver, 67 garments for priests. The priests, the Levites, the pastors and teachers, religious leaders, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, along with, the certain, with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. When the seventh month came, that's... Um, September and um, October in the Hebrew calendar came and the Israelites had settled in their towns all. Now we're a terrible chapter <laughs> break there uh, because it broke at a comma. <laughs> Verse one, chapter eight, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. Uh, they told no connection to President Nixon there. The... <laughs> And everyone over 50 years old said, amen. <laughs> they told Ezra the scribe, Ezra's back, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, the uh, first five books, all right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, scrolls, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Let's park there. So the walls are up, solid leaders in place. Uh, guards were appointed, securities at an all-time high, and they're um, parceled out the land and the houses they've rebuilt. Thousands of Jews have moved in, and notice the free will offerings. Those who benefit by, in God's work are the ones who give, and you'll see that not everyone gives. It says some, some of them, and that's always the way it is, and God, uh, his grace is always sufficient. But it's more blessed to give than to receive, says the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, they give to defray the costs for repair and um, building new homes and restoring the homes. And so it says by the time the pumpkin patch was up and running, you know, and the corn maze was in operation, the city was teeming with happy-hearted uh, Hebrews. And so now it's time to have church. Only eight verses more, then we're good. We're done. So on the first day of the seventh month, so right around the end of September, um, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before, brought the, out the Bible before the assembly. So they're having a holiday, right? They're consecrating themselves. They're having church, a big conference. 
which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. In other words, everybody in the assembly uh, was of an age where you could speak to them, teach them something they'd understand. He read it out loud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand, uh, you know, grade school. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law, the Bible. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood these 13 dudes. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. You know, this is where we get church. I mean, this is right out of the Bible. And not the New Testament, the Old Testament. You see, it's just beautiful. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the crown. That's something, you know, sometimes we do, but usually in the privacy of our own homes. Uh, It just doesn't work practically in church. Uh, The Levites... There they are again, all of them, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the Bible, making it clear. Oh, what a concept. And giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. (laughs) We're going to pause there. Amen? All right, so with the vigilance uh, now to be on guard comes the diligence Uh, with the word of God. Does it surprise anybody here that after all is said and done, the walls are up, the temple's up and running, uh, houses have been rebuilt, and the Jews have been out of the land for 150 years, now in the city, protected behind the walls, the first thing they want to do is consecrate themselves to God in a worship service where the Bible is Front and center. This just defines what all ministry uh, is all about. Always front and center is the word of God. And so Nehemiah is going to be in the background for a couple chapters. And Ezra comes back after 13 years. Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries. And they seem to take turns in leadership. So when one comes in, the other one's missing. And when, the, when, when that one goes away, the other one comes in to fill the place. And so now you have two chapters of Pastor Ezra. Pastor Ezra has done a great work for God in the temple. Now he's kind of the pastor of Jeru- the church of Jerusalem there. And so he is going to stand up on a platform with a pulpit, with the Bible, and he's going to preach the word But it also has six times the word to understand in different ways. Six times. That whole concept is he didn't just stand up there and read for six hours, though the service went six hours, and he was teaching for six hours while they were standing. I'm sure that there were times, and it does say toward the end of your your paragraph there, that there were times of explanation. So there'd be reading. So... Whether he read from Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus, I think he read from Genesis and Deuteronomy. You know, Deuteronomy is just wonderful. Deuteronomy is really 
two sermons that Moses preached. That's what Deuteronomy is. And it's a long one, you see. So there was plenty of material uh, to gather there. And so they're having church, and we look back and say, boy, it looks familiar, and it ought to look familiar. We ought to be able to say, well, why do you have a platform? Well, let me show you here. Right there. Oh, wow, perfect timing. <laughs> let me show you there. I mean, some of the artist renderings, you know, they do the best that they can. I like that one. You know, it just kind of gives you uh, what was going on there, you know? And so he opens up the scroll and he starts reading, you know, it's the Bible. Nehemiah didn't get up and say, let me tell you what I think. You know, it wasn't a group of people dialoguing. You know, the latest thing is now, let's get together and dialogue about what the Bible really means. Where does it say that we're supposed to dialogue about the commands of the Lord? The commands of the Lord are to be obeyed. They're not to be dialogued about, to be questioned. And what does this really mean? That's what Satan did. Did God really say? He wanted a dialogue, and he got, it's because of a dialogue that we all got into trouble, has God really said. Well, he didn't really mean that. Thou shalt not surely die. That's not what it says in the Hebrew. What the real Hebrew is, you know, you're not going to die. You're going to, you know, maybe cry a little bit or whatever he said. But he, he tricked her because of the dialogue. All scriptures God breathed and is used for training us in how to live right before God, to rebuke us, to correct us, to give us life. God breathed. It's the breath of God. Men didn't write in. That's why it needs to be on a platform, behind a pulpit, open up and being read, put up there and explained. Put up there and explained so that the people can understand. Because when they understand, they can do the will of God. Jesus told a parable. He compared himself to a farmer scattering seed. And the seed was the word of God. He said, some of the seed fell on, on the ground, on the hard path. And, that, and the birds came and ate it. And these things always point to salvation, right? But I say these four kinds of situations continue throughout the Christian's life, right? So there are people in here who aren't hearing a word I'm saying, because there's hardness of heart. And so the word comes in, they're in church, they're doing their thing, but they're not listening because there's a hardness there. And so the, the seed goes up against that hardness and bounces out and the, the birds of the air, Jesus defines it as the devil, comes and snatches it away. So whatever was said tonight to that person with a layer of hardness that didn't get through is gone forever took it away. And then there's the seed of the rocky soil that lacks shallow, and there's still shallow Christians today. Yes, it might keep you from being saved in the parable, but then if you're a surface kind of Christian and the, the word doesn't really have a chance to get down deep, well, there's life, and as soon as the sun comes up, the life in you just kind of withers away because there's no root and then he talks about the briars, the seed, the word of God that, that falls on thorns and thistles. And he describes that as cares and pleasures and worries and riches of this life. He says it chokes out the word that's trying to get into your heart. 
but there's so much other stuff in there. It can't be fruitful because it's cluttered with other plants of different kinds, otherworldly. But then he says, oh, man, then there's the fertile soil. Somebody's just got an open, soft heart, comes to church and says, Lord, feed me. I'm open. It's your word. It's not that guy up there. It's the Holy Spirit coming through the word of God, explaining it and applying it to my heart, and pow, that goes deep, and it produces a crop. And when the crop is up, there's fruit, and it's helpful to other people. This was the point. This is always the point. You, I don't even mind if you go to another church where this is front and center. You go to a church where the Bible is being preached. I just read an article that encouraged pastors to bring it down to 13 minutes in the pulpit, according to the average American's attention span. <laughs> 13 minutes. The Lord of the Rings is three hours. <laughs> A football game is three hours and 15 minutes, the average one. But they want us to bring it down to 13 minutes because nobody will pay attention more than 13 whole minutes. The average American watches five hours of television a day. A day. Pastors, bring it down to 13 minutes. And I'll tell you whose idea that was. The prince of the power of the air. And because pastors have done that, you've got Christians running around being blown here and there by every wind of doctrine, going to, to little parties to have dialogue about what the word of God really says, you know? Maybe, what did he really mean by hell? I mean, what, what does that really mean? Let me tell you what it really means. <laughs> it's dark and hot and forever, right? How hard is that? Well, what does it mean when Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? Oh, let me think. <laughs> Come on. That's because there's 13 minutes of that. And the 13 minutes you do get leaves you more confused than when you, before you came into the church. So pray for us that we will be men of God like Ezra and Nehemiah and not be listening to the world and try to cater to what everybody thinks we ought to do. I want to do what God has called us to do. And that is to put his word front and center. High, lift it up so everybody could see. Put it on the screen. Here it is. Here's what it means. And let's apply it. Because we can't just be hearers of the word and deceive ourselves. But we have to be hearers and doers of the word. That's why understanding is so important. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your unfailing love. Thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for the word of God. The power to renew our minds and give us hope and heal our wounds and show us, keep us on the straight and narrow path that leads to life. We're so dependent on the word of God. Feed us and help us, Lord, to acquire a taste. Lord, we, we eat a lot of junk food spiritually and we ruin our appetite. 
We don't have very good attention spans. And just help us to develop a taste for the word of God and a hunger to know you through your living word, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.